pray. The Lord be with you. Father, we thank you for this time to uh, continue to look into the sacraments of the church, look into uh, the ministry of the church, and we ask that you would enlighten us uh, with your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right. Well, um, yeah, do you all have at least something to work off of there? Great. Then let's, um, let's, let's start with uh, the church and the ministry. We'll kind of just go through the question and answers as always, and then we'll pick up where we left off. Okay. When were you made a member of the church? I was made a member of the church when I was baptized. What is the church? The church is the body which of Jesus Christ is the head, and all baptized people are the members. How is the church described in the Apostles and Nicene Creeds? The church is described in the creeds as one, holy, Catholic, and apostolic. What do we mean by these words? We mean that the church is one because it is one body under one head, holy because the Holy Spirit dwells within it and sanctifies its members, Catholic because it is universal, holding sincerely the faith for all time, in all countries, and for all people, and is sent to preach the gospel to the whole world, apostolic because it continues firmly in the apostles' teaching and fellowship. What is your binding duty as a member of the church? My binding duty is to follow Christ, to worship God every Sunday in his church, and to work and pray and give for the spread of his kingdom. What special means does the church provide to help you do all these things? The church provides the laying on of hands or confirmation. Here, after renewing the promises and vows of my baptism and declaring my loyalty and devotion to Christ as my master, I receive the gifts of the Holy Spirit to give me inner strength. After you have been confirmed, what great privileges our Lord provide for you? Our Lord provides the sacrament of the Lord's Supper, or Holy Communion, for the continual strengthening and refreshing of my soul. What orders of ministers are there in the church? Bishops, priests, and deacons, which orders have been in the church from earliest times? What is the office of a bishop? The office of a bishop is to be the chief pastor in the church, to confer holy orders, and to administer confirmation. What is the office of a priest? The office of a priest is to minister to the people committed to his care, to preach the word of God, to baptize, to celebrate Holy Communion, and to pronounce absolution and blessing in God's name. What is the office of a deacon? The office of a deacon is to assist the priest in divine service and in his other ministrations under the direction of the bishop. What are the main seasons of the church here? The main seasons of the church year are Advent, when we anticipate the coming of the Lord, Christmas Tide, when we celebrate the Nativity of Jesus, Epiphany Tide, when we celebrate the Lord's revelation to the nations, Lent, a season of repentance and anticipation of the resurrection, Holy Week, when we remember our Lord's passion and death, Easter Tide, when we celebrate the resurrection of our Lord, Ascension Tide, when we celebrate our Lord's ascension into heaven and seating at the right hand of the Father. Pentecost or Whit Sunday when we celebrate the coming of the Holy Spirit, Trinity Tide when we celebrate the Holy Trinity and grow in our walk with God. What are the typical colors associated with these seasons? The traditional colors associated with the church year are violet for Advent, Lent, Holy Week, and funerals, a somber color of anticipation and repentance, white for Christmas Tide, Epiphany, Easter Tide, Ascension Tide, Trinity Sunday, and funerals, a color of celebration. Green for Epiphany Tide and Trinity Tide, a color of growth and life for ordinary time. 
red for Pentecost, confirmations, ordinations, and martyrs' feasts, a color representing the fire of the Holy Spirit. What is the Holy Bible? The Holy Bible, or Holy Scripture, is God's Word and contains all things necessary for salvation. The Bible is God's revelation of himself, tells the story of God and his people, and contains the teaching of Christ and his apostles. Everything we must believe is read in or proved by Scripture. How many books are in the Bible? The Bible includes the 39 books of the Hebrew Old Testament and the 27 books of the Greek New Testament. These are the 66 canonical books of whose authority was never any doubt in the church. Okay, let's, uh, let's turn back to page 9 and pick up with, uh, with confirmation uh, where, where we were. So we, um, last week we talked about uh, confirmation in general, um, the laying on of hands. We, we, we read the uh, passage in Acts where we see the apostles come down and lay, lay hands so that the people would receive the Holy Spirit. Um, and uh, we talked about re the renewing of promises of vows of baptism. And I believe we did mention that the way that we, we do it here um, in the Anglican world is that we do, uh, if someone has been um, confirmed in a tradition that has bishops and apostolic succession, we do not reconfirm them, we receive them. But if someone was confirmed in a tradition that does not have bishops and apostolic succession, such as the Presbyterians, uh, most Lutheran groups, that sort of thing, um, Baptists don't confirm, so that's not an issue there, uh, then we would reconfirm them so that they would have that um, tactile, that, that physical um, um, connection to the bishops through the laying on of hands, uh, with the bishops being the successors of the apostles as, as we view it. Um, I did want to open up for questions for that because we did kind of end at the, we, we ended pretty abruptly last week with that, and I know that that tends to be an issue that um, has a lot of questions involved, so. Oh, um, page nine, uh, confirmation. So, uh, two, two, three questions from the bottom on page nine. So, the, uh, the laying on of hands um, or confirmation as that special means the church provides to help you do your bounden duty. So the bishop, um, as part of the confirmation ceremony, the bishop lays his hands on, on the confirmant's forehead, um, just like we see the apostles doing um, for, to, when, when they were uh, praying for the people to receive the Holy Spirit in, in the book of Acts. Um, and so that's, yeah, that's, that's where the, the main point of the sacrament of confirmation is the bishop laying on of hands. Now... There is um, anointing of oil that comes with that, and that goes back to a very ancient practice in the church that's called chrismation, and the Eastern Church usually prefers that term. Um, chrismation literally meaning putting oil on them. And so, so um, we do also anoint with oil at the same time, oil being that, that symbol, that sign of the Holy Spirit. Could you uh, speak to uh, confirmation Yeah. Uh, but at the same time, we're, we're main members. 
how, how should we understand that, that relationship between the two? Yeah, so there's there's a lot of there's a lot of history to unpack with that, and so we'll we'll uh, we'll try to we'll try to do that <laughs> in summary fashion. Um, in the in the earliest days of the church, before the church had really spread to the point where um, you didn't have basically a bishop in every locale, you know, you, you could you could have you know you did have presbyters still, you did have priests still, but. You didn't really have priests running the show the way that we do now. In the early days, they almost always administered baptism, confirmation or chrismation, and the first communion altogether. Um, and, and, and this is, you know, we're talking the first few generations when most of the people coming into the church are converts, and the bishop would do all of those things. Um, so um, really it was one ceremony that had all those things happen. Um, my understanding is that in the Eastern Church for converts and for even when children are baptized, they kind of keep it going that way, but they have delegated all of those things to the priest since the bishop can't be everywhere. In the Western Church, we didn't want to separate the bishop from that. And so um, communion and baptism was delegated to the priest, but the bishop retained confirmation. The problem with that ended up being that we separated those rites of initiation, um, where you used to have those three rites all happening together. They really were three parts of one rite. Now we end up with three different rites. Um, my understanding is that initially um, confirmation was not a prerequisite to communion, but in the early Middle Ages, it, be, it kind of developed into a prerequisite, largely because people just weren't bothering to get confirmed. Um, you know, both, both confirmation was getting neglected. Um, communion was often neglected in those days, too. Um, we kind of look at communion as on a weekly basis as just as being a but-of-course issue. Um, even 100 years ago, that's not the case um, for, for, for most Christians. Um, so what we do see is that um, by the time of the Reformation, each of those different churches, the, um, the Presbyterians, the Lutherans, the various Episcopalians and the Anglicans, the Roman Catholics, everybody pretty much said, if you're not confirmed in my church, you're not taking communion here. I mean, communion was totally closed across denominational lines for a very long time. Um, on the one hand, I can see the good logic for that in that you want people who are coming to communion to be properly catechized and it should be that once catechized, as soon as possible, someone's getting confirmed. Um, there's a couple things that kind of prevented that from being the case. One was it just kind of became a thing very early on to delay confirmation until they were young adults, you know, teenagers. And we even see this as recently as, you know, in the previous couple generations. Um, it was almost like graduating from Sunday school more than anything else. And that's, and so by the time people are receiving their first communion, they're about 10 years into when they should have been communioning at the very latest anyway, when they, were, when they could have been properly catechized for a lot of people. Not everybody, but a lot of people. So that's not a good thing. The other thing is, is that confirmation, while we do see precedent for it with the apostolic laying on of hands in Acts chapter 8, um, that is not a command of the Lord as a prerequisite to coming to the Lord's table. 
And so we have put a fence, we have put a fence on the Lord's table that, that seems, is very likely not a biblical fence. You know, I mean, you, you, can, you can make the argument, but it seems to me a stronger argument that that's not a biblical fence. So by the time we get to the 20th century, pretty much that discipline of requiring confirmation prior to communion had disappeared. Um, you see throughout the Western church, going back to an older, an older uh, pattern of paedo-communion, um, which is an older pattern. Um, it disappeared for a very, very long time in the Western church, but, but it is the older pattern of communing, communing children. Um, and so that becomes kind of a thing in the 20th century. And in, in, in our circles today, it's, it's one of those things that tends to vary by parish or vary by diocese. Um, our, our diocesan discipline in the issue is that um, with the parents, if the parents and the priest agree, um, un, unconfirmed children can commune, but, but they're expected to be being catechized. If they are being catechized, they may, they may commune. Um, that's, but that has to be something that's, a, that's an agreement that the parents and the priests are all on the same page on that. So if either the priest doesn't want to do that for his, his convictions, um, then it's not done. If the parents want to keep their children from communion, um, it's, it's theirs as well. Um, my, my, my daughters at this point are not being communed. Um, I, I want them to be, be, be catechized um, at least a bit longer first. Um, you know, even though they have been baptized, um, even with my, with my four-year-old, um, she gets some things, but she doesn't get it enough to where I would feel comfortable communing her. Um, I have other, there's other families here that that's the same way. Some of their younger children, they're not communing them yet. But we do have other families that that um, that we do. So I don't theologically have a problem with that. But for my children, we're not we're not ready. Um, I, I think in some ways, like I said, it is a good discipline that we want catechized people to be taking communion. But at the same time, we don't want to set up that artificial fence. I'm of a divided mind on the issue, to be honest. The discipline of our prayer book, being an older prayer book, is not communing un unconfirmed people, whether they're children or converts, you know, um, converts in terms of converts to the tradition, not, not, not converts to, to a Christian faith, because definitely nobody who's not baptized should be taken. So that's, that's kind of the, the way the discipline goes. Um, the laying on of hands that happens on confirmation and ordination and uh, consecration. Yes, yes. Uh, and so I'm wondering... Um, what the um, obviously it's a mystery exactly what's what's happening right but I'm wondering why uh, um, there is a distinction um, or I, I guess I'm wondering how there is a distinction I know why there is a distinction why how there is a distinction between those those different ways you know if the if the bishop touches my my hand or, or touches does the laying of hands to me. Yeah. Then, uh, then am I not commissioned by the bishop to go and and, and do the same things that the apostles did as as somewhat of a, um, a beneficiary, if not a successor to the, the apostles? Um, so we, we see we we see different uses of laying on the hands in the New Testament itself. 
Um, so you see, again, in Acts 8, where the apostles came down to lay hands on all those believers who had been converted by, the, by those early deacons um, in Samaria um, so that they would receive the Holy Spirit. Um, what is what the nature, how, how that reception of the Holy Spirit differs from receiving the Holy Spirit in baptism? Because we do recognize that the Holy Spirit, you know, you are indwelt by the Holy Spirit when you're baptized. Um, that's otherwise you wouldn't be regenerate, right? And, and the church is also accepting of, of baptism by not, not even the clergy. Right, right. Yeah, it's ideally it should be clergy, but 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 yeah, baptism, you know. Yeah, yeah, there's certainly, um, anybody can baptize when necessary, even if clergy is the ideal. Um, so, so we, yeah, so there's definitely a recognition of the reception of the Holy Spirit at baptism, but there is a, a strengthening of the Holy Spirit and some sort of quickening of the Spirit's work through that apostolic, um, commissioning to that ministry of the laity, really. And that's, that's... And that's kind of a way, again, that comes, comes more from some of that 20th century understanding of confirmation as a commissioning of the laity at, at confirmation. So, okay, um, similar to how, um, you know, in, 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 in Judaism there would be a bar mitzvah. Um, okay, you are now a full-fledged member of this community. You, are, you, you have responsibility in this community. You are a son of the commandments. Well, similarly, you, know, you are commissioned um, as a, as a um, member of the church who, who is fully responsible for that bounden duty. Um, but we also see lay, other laying on of the hands that only applies to appointing elders and overseers. Um, and you see this, for example, when St. Paul tells um, either St. Timothy or St. Titus, I forget which one, um, to, to not be hasty in laying on of hands. Um, you know, the, the context there is very clearly in appointing leadership. And so um, we have the same um, symbolic act, but different intention depending on the situation. So, um, so when someone is confirmed, kind of commissioned in that ministry of the laity, um, they, they certainly have uh, the commissioning to, to spread the gospel, to do those good works, to be a representative of Jesus Christ and his church. But what they don't have is that commissioning to the ministry of word and sacrament. And that's, re that's really where that, where that difference is, is that the ordained ministry is a special ministry to, to, um, to shepherd God's people with respect to word and sacrament, and, you know, preaching the word, um, teaching the word, and administering the sacraments. And so that's really where the difference in intention goes. And, and we do see this at least um, in, in different ways in the way that the, uh, the liturgy goes for it. So um, let me pull up the, uh, the confirmation liturgy here. I kind of figured we'd spend an at least one, one class completely on uh, confirmation, and we, we will, which is good. Um, okay, so what the, so the bishop, um, if you have your prayer book, this is page 296, or if you want to grab one off the shelf over there, page 296. So it begins with the, um, the, uh, the priest um, presenting the confirmands to the bishop, 
to, to, be, to have that laying on of hands. And then they read um, eight, ch Acts chapter 8, when the apostles were at Jerusalem, or which were at Jerusalem, heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent unto them Peter and John, who, when they were come down, prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Ghost, for as yet he was fallen upon none of them, only they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then laid they their hands on them, and they received the Holy Ghost. So that, that sets the scriptural, the scriptural precedent. And what ends up happening is, um, next, the, the bishop asks those people who are going to be confirmed if they are going to, you know, um, do you renew the solemn promise and vow that you made in your name and your baptism? So um, the renouncing of the world, the flesh, and the devil, fighting manfully under Christ's banner, following him all the days of your life, that sort of thing. Um, and and they, they do. <laughs> um, and then here's what the bishop prays as he, as he lays their hand, his hands on them, bottom of page 297. Defend, O Lord, this thy child with thy heavenly grace, that he may continue thine forever, and daily increase in thy Holy Spirit more and more, until he come unto thy everlasting kingdom. Amen. And then he um, concludes with the prayer, with, with a couple prayers um, on page 298 and 298. So he, in the first prayer, he's, he's, he says that he's doing that, he's praying. Um, we make our humble supplications unto thee, O Lord, for these thy servants upon whom, after the example of thy holy apostles, so again, we're reiterating that biblical example, we have now laid our hands to certify them by this sign of thy favor and gracious goodness towards them. Okay, so that's part of it. Is uh, is that sign from the bishop is saying is is a is a um, pledge to the people of God's grace and favor through the Holy Spirit, right? And then he says, "Let thy fatherly hand we beseech thee ever be over them. Let thy Holy Spirit ever be with them, and so lead them in the knowledge and obedience of thy word, that in the end they obtain everlasting life through our Lord Jesus Christ, etc., cetera, etc." Cetera. And um, then we then we say, O mighty Lord, O, o Almighty Lord and everlasting God, vouchsafe that is guarantee. Vouchsafe we beseech thee to direct, sanctify, and govern both our hearts and bodies in the ways of thy laws and the works of thy commandments. That through thy most mighty protection, both here and ever, we may be preserved in body and soul through our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. So we see the purpose of this here is really um, for confirmation uh, that. Um, sign of God's favor, that sign of God's grace through the Holy Spirit, and that, and that praying for the empowerment of the Holy Spirit that they will live out their Christian vocation. So just general Christian vocation, that bound in duty stuff, um, following the Lord, uh, serving Him in His church, um, all that other sort of thing. Work, pray, and give for His kingdom, all that bound in duty stuff. Now, the... Um, for, for ordination, we're just going to look at the ordination of the priest, because um, we'll talk about the different orders in the upcoming weeks. Um, so this is page 546, page 546 in our prayer book. Um, when he's laying his hand, this is what he's saying to, saying to, the, to the new priest. Um, he says, receive the Holy Ghost for the office and work of a priest in the church of God, now committed to thee by the imposition of our hands, whose sins thou dost forgive, they are forgiven, and whose sins thou dost retain, they are retained. And be thou a faithful dispenser of the word of God and of his holy sacrament in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. 
Amen. So we have that special prayer. Okay, this is we're asking for the empowerment of the Holy Spirit for something particular here with the priests, and that is um, forgiveness of sin. So that office of the keys, um, then dispensing the word and dispensing the sacrament, ministry of the word and sacrament. And then when he's praying um, for, for them, he says, Most merciful Father, we beseech thee to send upon these thy servants thy heavenly blessing, that they may be clothed with righteousness, and that thy words spoken by their mouth may have success, that it may never be spoken in vain. Grant also that we may have grace to hear and receive what they shall deliver out of thy most holy word, or agreeable to the same, as the means for our salvation, that in all our words and deeds we may seek thy glory and increase of thy kingdom through Jesus Christ our Lord. So again, that, that prayer for um, the Holy Spirit's work, and specifically in this case, the ministry of the word. Um, so that, that's really what we're having going on, is two, two different intentions um, for the same, um, same, same action, because that's the way that, you know, from biblical times, from Old Testament times, anointing um, authority, the, Holy, the gift of the Holy Spirit for whatever that, that commissioning um, looks like is. So whether it's, you know, kings, priests, prophets in the Old Testament, laity, um, deacons, priests, bishops in the, in the um, nowadays. All right, we got a few minutes. Uh, um, did did that did that help anything? Did that help on on either one of those? Because I didn't actually follow up with you either, Charlie. <laughs> yeah, no, no, it, it didn't. Okay, good, good. And uh, Andrew, right? Yeah. Okay, great, great. And that that was that helpful? Yes. Okay, yeah, good, it's, good. It's interesting to me that um, you know the Amish uh, they didn't interpret the Great Commission as being directed to them. They said that they said that to the apostles. That's interesting. Yeah. And and so uh, you know obviously the church. But it's interesting that the church did not interpret the, um, the, uh, the Lord's Supper as being done by basically just anybody. Um, yeah, yeah. And, that, and, that's, and that's something that is certainly in our, in our cultural context in this part of the United States gets very, um, can be very controversial. I remember um, the parish in which I was ordained um, you know, as typical Anglican parishes these days, you have people from a variety of backgrounds. And we had, you know, one guy, pillar of the community. Um, many of you might know his name if, if, if I mentioned it too. <laughs> he got so angry when we were talking about um, how the discipline of the church, you know, I think we were going through the articles of religion, is that the, that the ministry of the sacrament is reserved for, for the ministers. Um, because, you know, well, I, I take my family up to the woods and we have communion and that's, you know, and he got so angry. Um, like, oh, that's, that's fine, but that's not the discipline. <laughs> you know, that's not the discipline of the church. That's, that's, not, that's not the way it was really done. Um, I mean, so, some, of the, some of the radical reformers like the Anabaptists might have done that in the um, post-Reformation, but that was seen as being, um, I mean, they, they were seen, be, seen generally as being just kind of off the deep end by everybody else. You know, and, and certainly there's no precedent for that anywhere else in church history. Um, so, yeah, but, but, I mean, when 
from certain backgrounds, that's going to be something that's expected. Um, I, I mean, I, I don't, I don't know how how it kind of officially is in Baptist circles, but I know that it's not uncommon for um, their well, understanding it's of not the priesthood. In well, yeah, that that's true. That's true too. But yes, yeah, so, but yeah, some of their they, they really view the ordained ministry as only being pertaining to the preaching of the word for that local congregation. And when it comes to the ordinances, because they don't call them sacraments, I, I think I think they're just not a real developed theology, at least not that gets down to the laity. Um, not 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 in our circles anyway. I mean, I don't even. I went to a Baptist university for my for my uh, formal theological education. I don't I don't remember even touching on um, the uh, not in terms of who who's a proper minister. I mean, mostly what they talked, when we talked about communion, it was um, the means of the Lord's presence in there, or lack thereof. Because um, the joke is, the Lord's every, their Lord's always with us unless we're doing communion, and he's definitely not with us. You know, <laughs> that's the joke that the theology professor made, because we, we are not Roman Catholics, and therefore the Lord is not present here. <laughs> you know, it's just a symbol. And of course, that's not what, you know, any of them really believe, but that's kind of the, the joke stereotype. Well, it's like, uh, you know, those things. Right, yeah, it's one of those hashtag things. Like, yeah, exactly, exactly. Yeah, and then um, yeah, with baptism, the big the big question, of course, was um, you know the the you know arguing about you know from their perspective why there is not justification for pedo baptism. I was the only one in my class that argued it in my uh, for it, obviously, and um, my professor was at the time was the only. In my theology class, my big theology class, we were so over time, um, he was the only um, Protestant on staff at Oblate, the Catholic um, seminary at the time. And I think due to budget cuts, there's no Protestants there anymore at all. They, they had to lay off a lot of people. But, um, Spivey, so, right? yeah, Dr. Spivey, yeah. And, yeah, he's, uh, I, I, enjoy, I enjoyed all of his classes. Um, but, so he, he knew the arguments both ways. And he just, he was like, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, let, I'm gonna let Isaac hang out there and only rescue him if the dogs get too mean. <laughs> and I was like, I don't care. I'll, you know, I'm, I'm, I'll, 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 but my classmates, it was unthinkable that you know the Pado Baptist position—that's the historic position of the church—was. It's not just that they disagreed, but that it never occurred to them that anybody in their right mind could uphold Pado Baptism. I mean, they, it just never occurred to them. So, of course, you know, they, they weren't able to make arguments against it because they had never even considered it as a valid issue. So it was very interesting. Anyway, we are over time. Um, we will be doing even song for the Feast of St. James, for the eve of the Feast of St. James. And I will see you all in about 12 minutes. Mm-hmm.